Uh, we're not going to start a brand new series today. We're going to just talk a little bit about gratitude. It's a fitting weekend to do so. And so to introduce this, uh, here's what I, I wanted to do is I want you to think about your own life for just a moment. I don't want you to think about, I, think about it like a normal week, not a Thanksgiving week, not a holiday, your own life, and an everyday, average, normal week. And the question that I want to ask you is during that week, how many times do you experience, keyword experience, a moment of genuine gratitude? Think about it. In your own life, how many times does this occur? Now, just to be clear, what I'm not asking is, are you a grateful person? A lot of you might shift to that and be like, well, I think I'm a pretty grateful person. Sure, that's fine. This isn't about like who you are as a human. I'm actually asking on a weekly basis, how often, how many times a week do you actually experience a moment of genuine gratitude for yourself? Roll that around for a moment. As you think about it, is your answer 20 times? Some of you guys are like, how do you quantify it? I don't know. 20 times? 30 times? 40 times? I can tell by some of your faces I'm going the wrong direction. Right? Okay, less than 20 times? Less than 10 times? For some of you, did you have a hard time thinking of a moment where you could like go, well, I, I think there, right? It's hard. It can be hard to wrap our heads around this idea. Uh, this is really important. No matter how you answer that question, I'm glad you're here. Gratitude is something incredibly important that we could all use a little more of in our lives. That's why we're going to talk about it today. You realize that most statistics that are going to come out, most research that's going to come out, in fact, it, it, I'd really challenge you to find the opposite of this, but are going to show that the greater the level of gratitude in a person's life, the lower the levels of generalized anxiety, depression, like mental unwellness, like all those types of things. They're also going to find that the greater the levels of, of um, excuse me, gratitude in somebody's life, you're going to find that that's also going to increase the greater levels of just connection with people and also with God, a felt sense of experience and connection with God and the way they feel like God relates to them and relates to others. And this is why gratitude is not just this like eat your vegetables type of a moment. It actually becomes this really big deal for each and every one of us. God made you in such a way where gratitude is like the baseline that opens you up to joy, to contentment, and to connection in a really powerful way. So it's so incredibly important that we talk about it. You know, about a decade ago, I led a house building trip with a bunch of students and their small group leaders down into Mexico. At that time, we were partnering with a different organization. Now we, we go and we'll, we'll help, you know, build a segment of a house because the house is much nicer quality. And so it takes a little bit longer. Then we would show up though, and, and we'd literally show up and there'd just be a dirt pad. That's it. They'd have scraped a dirt pad to be level. And then we would essentially get a bunch of students and we'd pour concrete. We'd mix concrete and we'd pour forms. And then we'd build frames for the outside walls and windows and doors. And, and we'd build a roof. And then we'd, we'd you know, stucco the whole thing and wrap the whole thing. And, and then finally hand over keys in three days. It would go from a dirt pad to like a house that we handed over to people in a three-day amount of time as somebody who did not have a home or a physical house now had one. And it was really powerful to watch. Your middle school students would do this. Your high school students would do this. It's pretty incredible. It was a really powerful experience. On one particular year, in this particular year that, that I'm referencing, uh, the family, one of the families that we'd gone to build a house for, they were a really young couple. One, the, the guy was like 20 years old. Uh, I want to say the, the, his wife, the woman, was about 18. And they had a two-year-old daughter. 
And they'd been living in a four-man tent on their property. That was, that was their home. That's where they had been living, which it, it covered them and everything else. But if you had wind and shelter and, or, or storms and different things, it, it just made the situation a lot tougher. They didn't have a working bathroom. They didn't have power and they didn't have running water. Uh, and there was just a, an outhouse that had been constructed out of plywood and it was basically a hole that was dug in the ground about 30 yards off and that's what they were using uh, to, to go to the bathroom and had been doing so for some time, sharing that with some neighbors and some people that were living in the area around them. And so this was the couple that we went to build for. The guy was a joy. He uh, loved partnering with our students. He would get in there and if somebody was struggling or didn't understand something, he'd pause and show them how to do it a little better or help them out with that uh, and, and you know, get in there. He worked super hard on the house and was just, he was a warm host of a site. It was amazing. His wife laughed a ton. She had this kind of joy. And I think it's because she thought all of us as, as, you know, student small group leaders and also students were nuts because there was all this energy and everybody's running around a work site and so many people were playing with their two-year-old daughter and she just thought all of it was hilarious and she was warm-hearted. They cooked us tamales uh, for a lunch one time. They cooked the entire group of us tamales and fed us all lunch, which were absolutely delicious. And their two-year-old daughter, that I, I just love. She became like the mascot for the trip because she was just this like little bundle of joy running around a house everywhere. She did. It's like this little bundle of joy running around the house and every student was just like enamored with this, this child who was just happy and helpful and fun and chaotic and all the things that every great two-year-old should be. Now remember, we're driving back from this trip and I'm in a van and I'm driving a group of junior small girls home. Right, we're driving back to Arizona. And at some point in time in the, the car ride, I paused and just said, you know, you guys did a really significant thing in impacting somebody's life. Like you got to hand over keys to a home. That was a really, really big deal. Uh, and, and I bet you that made a really big impact in their life. But I can't help but wonder if this trip has impacted you and your life in some way, shape, or form. And one of these girls, she's again a junior in high school, she paused for a moment and looked at me and her response was, I know we showed up to give of like what we have and what we had to bring, but she goes, as we drive away, I just find myself wanting what they have. And I thought that was a weird way to say that because I immediately thought back to a hole in the ground bathroom or a tent or that's like where my brain went. And I said, what do you mean? You want what they have? And she said, I have so much stuff and I have so much money and so much more opportunity even than this whole family had available to them. And yet I find myself so frustrated and dissatisfied with my life so often of the time. And she was like, these people were living in a tent and going to the bathroom outside and, and just stuff that for me would be very frustrating and yet they were super grateful and happy and contented and there was so much joy. And she's like, and as we drive home, I just find myself saying, I, I want what they have. I want that. And I thought that was so interesting. If you have a student who's ever been on a trip like this with us, then you know that this is actually like a very common experience. I remember when I was a student myself and I was driving home from a similar trip, I got home and I was like, guys, we need to sell all of our things ASAP. I did. I was like, this stuff's all getting in the way. There's something bigger. There's something better that we can have in our lives. Like very idealistic, but that's what I wanted. You know, we should do this. And you experience this. I want you to think about this though. What she said was pretty profound. Friends, think about what she was saying. We currently as a people, have more resource, more opportunity, more possession than most cultures throughout all of human history. Do you realize that? Throughout all of human history, and yet so often we report in moments with research and studies and statistics and things that we're unsatisfied or we're frustrated or we're 
It's just not hitting the same way, the way that you maybe think it should or the way that I would. Why is it so hard at times to find joy and contentment? When you look at your own life, do you ever feel this where you just look and you're like, oh, it's just, mm. why is it so hard for us in moments to find joy and contentment? I think of her words that she used. She said, you know, I just think of my own life and I have so much stuff and money and opportunities, but I'm unhappy. I don't want to do with that. See, I think this might have something to do with it. I think we believe that joy and contentment come from getting what we want. I do. I think many of us, we just think, I will have joy and I will have contentment when I finally have dot, 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 whatever that thing is. We think joy and contentment often comes from getting what we want. For some of us, this is about money and possessions. I want to share a recent study with you that's fascinating to me. It was. This is a recent Harris poll uh, that came out. They surveyed 2,034 adults all over the age of 18, spanning across the generations. And they were looking at how each generation uh, perceived happiness based on annual income. So the question is, how much do you need to make in a year annually in order to be happy? What's that number? Go ahead and start thinking about that on behalf of your generation right now. Just take a guess at what you think they might have said. Gen Z, so this was people, and again, this was people 18 and over for Gen Z. They said $128,000 a year. That's how much I need to make annually in order to be happy. 128 a year. Gen X, 130 a year, right? 130,000 a year. Those numbers are closer together. For boomers, it was $124,000 a year is how much I need to make annually in order to be happy. And millennials, and I shared the, saved the most shocking statistic for last, was $525,000 annually in order to be happy, right? Now I know some of you guys are judging the millennials pretty hard right now. I, I see it from all of you, right? I do. And some of you millennials are like, which of my people said that? Like, point them out, right? Who gave us this reputation? Right, I, I get it. Here's the point, though. Let's say we ignore the millennial statistic that's in there, and let's say we just go with the others, which were in a pretty close spread. What does this tell us? Well, think about this. What it, what it indicates is that a very small percentage of Americans will ever make what they need to be happy. Right now in the United States of America, I believe it is only 18% of people that make over $100,000 per year. Across the nation, only 18% of people make over $100,000 a year. It is less than 1% of people that make over $500,000 in a given year. So what does that tell us? 82% of the general population has some inkling based on this that, and that they're not going to be happy based on the given income and things that they will make for a lifetime. They will not have what they need in order to be happy. That's a pretty staggering type of Stat, right? That's a pretty staggering perspective to take. And if you're in the millennial generation and you happen to hold with this similar value, then 99% of you, the forecast ahead of you, is just disappointment with evening showers of gloom, right? Like it, it doesn't look good and it's just continuous on this. This doesn't bode well for all of us, regardless of what generation that you are a part of as a nation. We always think if we just had more money, if I just had more possessions, if I just had a bigger house, if I could just take that vacation, if I could just take more vacations, if I just had then, I'd finally be content. I'd finally have joy. I'd be happy. You know, for others, it's not material possessions. It's more about things going the way that we want them to go. Some of us think if my political agenda was just the primary agenda and the major party and all the things, like then, then I'd finally be happy. Like I'd be good, I'd be contented. 
Or if what was happening in the world was different, if we weren't looking at the news with two wars going on and with a major global effect and all these things, if we weren't seeing climate crisis and different things start to occur, if we weren't seeing all of the data and all of the pieces and all the stuff that keeps coming back, if some of those problems would just be done with or go away then, but until then, until then I'm stressed, I'm anxious, depressed, I'm not, I don't have what I need, I'm not contented. For some of us, we just want the people who frustrate us to go away so that we can finally be happy and we can finally be contented and have a little gratitude up in our lives because we are wired to believe that joy and contentment will finally come when we get whatever it is that we want or desire. But it's not true, right? If you think that way, then the stats are pretty striking in the opposite direction, right? Like, it just doesn't bode well for all of us, so maybe we're defining it wrong. Friends, here's the truth. Joy and contentment come from being grateful for what it is we already have. If your life did not change at all right now, there is an opportunity for joy and contentment by being grateful for what it is that we already have. First Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. There's a lot we could teach on with a verse like this, but I just want to highlight some of the implications of this verse. Based on this verse, think of some of the implications. One is that there's the ability even to rejoice always, right? That's a weird thing to think about. That means that there's no moment in your life, there's no place that you will find yourself in where there is not some opportunity, some place, some aspect whether within you or around you, that is an opportunity to find joy. That's a hard thing to wrap your head around. It's a hard thing for me too. Some of the most profound studies on stuff like this actually come out of concentration camps in World War II, which is a very dark place that you think that defies all of this. And yet it's actually people who survive those moments that go, no, that was what helped us survive it all. That was what was so powerful, right? Or think about this with the verse. If we're to give thanks in all circumstances, Well, then that means that there's not a circumstance in our life where there isn't some aspect, some thing, some place, some opportunity for gratitude to make its way to us so that we can be thankful in the midst of it, even when it's difficult. Now, I know some of you are going to recoil at some of that because I would too. I'd look and I'd be like, why are you just being like overly positive about things? Is this like one of those things where you just ignore the bad and you're just supposed to be like, everything's great. I've just got so much joy and thankfulness and and you're pretending like everything's fine. No. The guy who writes this is Paul. He spends a lot of time talking about how hard things are. He spends a whole book in 2 Corinthians complaining about how frustrating all the people are. Like he, he's honest about a bunch of these things. I think what he's saying is you make room for both. That yeah, life is really hard. We hold that firmly in one hand and that there's also this thing called joy and gratitude and we learn to hold both of those at the same time. There's an opportunity for joy and gratitude at all times. I think that's why you can be a young family raising people in a four-man tent with a hole in the ground for a bathroom and still find yourself filled with joy and contentment and energy that's contagious and powerful. It's all around us, friends. Scripture tells us again and again that it's there. God tells us again and again that it's there. So why is it that it's so hard for so many of us to experience it when we think of our lives? Why is it when I ask that initial question at the beginning of the morning, it can be a bit of a wrestling match inside of us? I was recently reading a research study from the University of Indiana that more or less was looking at obstacles. Obstacles that like prohibit gratitude. They kind of stand in the way or they rob us of it. There was another another group of people using a different article to talk about this research and they, they identified these things as thieves of thankfulness and I thought that was kind of clever. 
These are things essentially that, that when they're in your life, they rob you of the ability to be grateful. What's interesting is these are all things that scripture seems to tell us like, yeah, don't let these things take hold in your life as well. They identified these as the following. Number one, envy. Number two, materialism. Number three, entitlement. Sometimes that gets referred to as a narcissism. And number four, cynicism, right? I want you to think about envy for a second. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 10 says the following. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Isn't that a powerful verse? That is a descriptor. The next time you've got somebody jealous in your house, just be like, I'm just sitting here watching your bones rot. See how it goes. It's going to be great, right? Or what about materialism? Think of materialism for a moment. Ecclesiastes 5.10, Solomon writes, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaninglessness. What about entitlement? Philippians chapter two points us in the opposite direction. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. And lastly, concerning cynicism, do you realize how the book of Psalms opens up? The very first verse in the very first chapter of the book of Psalms says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, right? See, envy is when you focus on what it is that others have that you wish you had, right? Materialism is when you focus on what you don't have, believing that if you just had it, having more will make you happy. Entitlement is when you focus on what you believe you already deserve. So consequently, when you get it, you're not grateful for it. Right? And lastly, cynicism is when you focus on the negative qualities of others in order to protect yourself. See, the reason these things all steal gratitude from us or all are thieves of thankfulness, as, the, as another article posed it, is because they direct our focus towards that which we don't have, that w w which we don't like, that which frustrate us, that which we deem as unfair, or that which we feel deserving of. And they rob us of these moments where we actually get to see good and beautiful things happen in our lives. We actually get to take it in like this genuine kind of experience where you see something powerful or you see something good or you see a small moment that impacts you in such a way that your eyes and your heart are wide open and you find yourself full of gratitude for it. Because we end up just focusing on that which we don't have and this leaves us anxious, depressed, and chronically unsatisfied. The Nintendo Entertainment System came out when I was a little kid. I don't remember what age I was. I was under the age of nine, somewhere in there. So I, I want, I don't know, maybe six years old, I'm not sure. But it came out when I was a little kid and I wanted one so badly. I did. I wanted one so badly. This was so much better than Atari, right? This was so much better than watching like a dot bounce around on a screen and a joystick. This was like a real controller. This was 8-bit graphics. This was a big deal. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. It's okay. It, it's a real, I, I wanted one so bad, but my parents said no, because they were really expensive when they came out. I don't know if you remember this. They were very expensive. And at the time, my family did not have very much money at all. Like we we really like work. My dad worked really, really hard. My mom worked hard to help make ends meet. And there wasn't a lot beyond that. Uh, and so they just thought there's a lot of other things we could spend our money on than a video game system for our, our son to play. And they were thought on behalf of me that there were a lot of things I could do that were better with my time, right? Than sit in front of a television. They would tell me this all the time. And so there were screen time limits and all these different things. They refused to get me one, but my neighbor across the street, his name was Joey. He was my best friend and he got a Nintendo. 
And it was life-changing, friends. It was amazing. I just wanted to live at his house. I did. I just thought, I spent a lot of this era of my childhood just thinking, if I just lived at Joey's house, my life would be so good, right? If I could just live over there, it would be so much better. It was the only place that I wanted to be. Joey not only had a new Nintendo entertainment system in his house, he had his own television in his bedroom, which was like unheard of. He had his own television in his room with a Nintendo, and he didn't have any limits or anything on screen time. He could play it as much as he wanted, and he didn't have to share with anybody because it was in his own bedroom. And I was like, dude, you're living in a palace over there. This is amazing. I want to live with you. Like, how, how do I get over there? I remember sleeping over at his house and playing a game called Contra all night long. I thought it was the greatest thing on the planet to the degree that it's the first time in my life I never went to bed. I stayed up an entire night. My eyes just like peeled back with amazement. And it's because I knew in the morning when the sleepover was done, I'd have to go back across the street to Alcatraz where the wardens weren't as nice. You know what I'm talking about? They, like, I, I just knew this. I'm like, I got to get this while I can because it's not going to be here forever. And if I could just live at Joey's house, this led to arguments with my parents. It did. Because I was like, guys, it's not fair that he's allowed to have a, a television in his room and his parents buy it. My mom buys him a Nintendo and he doesn't have any screen time limits or anything. Like he has all of these things. I, I don't even care if it's in my bedroom. I just want one in our house. And I, I have all these arguments and all these moments. I kept leaving catalogs open with like the Nintendo Entertainment Center, like, you know, the entertainment system right there, like hint, hints all the time. Christmas was just a massive disappointment that year. I did not get one. I know I'm being dramatic, but it's kind of how I felt, guys. As envy began to creep into my heart, I was jealous of Joey. I wanted his life. I didn't have it. And I thought to myself, if I could just have a Nintendo entertainment system, my whole life will be so much better. Jesus won't even have to come back. Heaven will be in our house. <laughs> like, I'll have it, right? Do you remember the first time materialism gripped you? I think this was it for me. I do. I think it's the first time that it grabbed a hold of my heart in a way where I just thought, if I just had that, then life would be so much better. And I would argue about with my parents about how I was a good kid who did all of my chores, so many more chores than Joey ever had to do, right? So why don't I deserve that? Why haven't I earned that? Why, am I, why are they not rewarding me with these things? It feels like I deserved this as entitlement crept into my life. But here's the thing. I knew better. I knew that my parents just didn't understand. I did because they were boring and had lost all their joy in life right? I did. They'd given up. They'd just forgotten what it was to have a spark of life inside their soul. And, and so consequently, nobody in the house should ever be allowed to have fun. That's the house I was living in. Welcome to Alcatraz, right? As cynicism crept into my life and my heart. And I just thought, if I could just escape, if I could just live across the street, everything would be better. So much so that I went out in the backyard. I took one of my dad's claw hammers and for a solid week, I just started trying to dig a tunnel from my backyard across the street. And I remember my mom and dad walking outside one day and I'm, I'm just, just some legs are sticking outside of this hole as I'm in there just beating away with a claw hammer. And they're like, Ryan, it's gonna collapse on you. This isn't safe. You gotta fill that hole in and stop digging in our backyard, and I realized Alcatraz is not easily escaped. <laughs> Friends, it's not, right? And I didn't ever get a Nintendo Entertainment System. I was thinking about this this last week. I was just going to share this story in a completely different way, and then this moment suddenly hit with me as I began to resonate with this, and I started to think back on something I'd missed, and it hit me now. You know what I realized? The reason Joey had a television 
in his room and a Nintendo in his room and there were no screen time limits or anything else was because he was always home alone and no one was ever home. I thought about this. His mom and his grandmother were his two primary caretakers. They love him dearly, but they worked at a Mexican bakery slash restaurant, and so you have to get up early to do the bakery stuff in the morning, and the restaurant stays open late, and they worked hard. So they were gone all the time. And his, his uncle lived with him, but he was mentally unwell and very quiet and, some, and just would come and go, and you never knew if he was even there. He was kind of like a non-presence in the house. And then I started to think, and I was like, you know, I don't remember even ever having a conversation about his dad. I don't remember ever seeing his dad or his dad ever being in a picture. And, huh, he was my best friend for years. He spent a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of time over there. He had Nintendo, did I mention that? And I found myself just thinking, why didn't I see any of that at that particular time? I, I didn't notice any of that. I was just focused on what he had that I wanted on the Nintendo that was so much better, that would make my life so much better, and all the things that if I could just have, then this would be great. And you know what I miss? This is the irony, is I miss the fact that part of the reason why my parents didn't buy me a Nintendo is because at night, they actually wanted to spend time with me. And it's not that Joey's parents didn't. I think my parents just had, were afforded a different opportunity that they stepped into. And I think that that was a privilege and a big deal. And I had security in my house and I had people who were there and people who cared about me and all of this stuff. And I just, I didn't see any of it because all I saw was a catalog with something I didn't have and a person across the street who had what I wanted and frustrations about arguments that weren't heard. And I just missed all of that. It's so weird to look back and reflect on something now and just be like, why didn't I see any of it then? And I know I'm sharing this weird story with you, but here's why. It makes me wonder what I might be missing now. Not about my story back then, about my life right now, friends. It makes me pause and wonder, what is God doing around me right now that perhaps I'm not seeing because I'm just looking in every other direction? It makes me pause and wonder what aspects or moments with my loved ones am I missing? What are the gifts that God's planted in my life and is doing through my life or in me that I'm just not seeing because I'm focused so entirely on something else, right? And I wanted to ask you the same question. Friends, what are you not seeing simply because your focus is somewhere else? Think back to the question I asked you at the very beginning of this message about how often you experience those moments of genuine gratitude. What moments are there, though, in your life that perhaps you aren't seeing simply because you're not looking for it, but because your heart or your mind, or your, or your eyes, your focus is someplace else? What moments of gratitude are we missing out of because we're not looking for them? Or, or consider this, his envy or materialism or entitlement or cynicism made its way into our heads and our heart and now the joy of gratitude that's actually right there for the taking because apparently there's these small moments all around us and apparently there's an opportunity to take joy at all times. We just can't see it. It feels like a million miles away. Or we're missing it. What would happen if we opened our eyes to it? Isn't that a powerful question? Because it's there. We don't need a holiday once a year to see it. It's there. And we could all use a little bit more of this in our lives. So I wanted to share one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. When I was 18 years old, I went to a tattoo artist to get this thing put on me. And he's like, are you sure you want a paragraph? And that was all I needed to walk out. 
Well, so I never, I never got it, but I love this verse, and it's because it was a mantra that I, I've wanted to live by. It's Philippians chapter four, and it's verse eight. I, I love this because as Paul writes, to me, this is like an avenue towards gratitude. It is. This is, this is like when you, when you feel like you've gotten lost in cynicism, when you feel like, like materialism or envy have taken over your heart and your mind, and this is all you see. When your perspective gets skewed and you lose your focus, this is essentially an opportunity to find your way back. And that's why I wanted to read it with us today. It says this. It says, finally, brothers. And let me just say, in saying brothers, he's, he's talking to a whole church. So this is men, women, kids, parents, everybody. Finally, brothers. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. As human beings, we all have this biological tendency in us, and it's called a negativity bias. Every single one of you. No, nobody in here is ex an exemption to this or an exception to the rule. We all have what's called a negativity bias. What it essentially means is that we are all a little bit predispositioned biologically to detect threats, to detect negative things, to detect bad stuff in a way greater rate than we are the positive thing. So it's a lot harder for us. We will memorize negative moments and qualities way faster than we will memorize positive ones. Like this is just makes you human. It's really natural. It's really normal. And it's actually very important. It helps you survive. Some of you might be like, I don't want to be negative. I know nobody does. But it is also the thing, it's this negativity bias that enables you when you open the kitchen, like you know, underneath the kitchen sink where the cleaning supplies usually are in most households to not be like, hey, I wonder what that tastes like. Because you know, that's poisonous. That will hurt me. And you've memorized that. And that's like a fact that is fixed firm in your head. It's not going anywhere. And it was easy to memorize. We, mem we, we have an easy time retaining the things that can hurt us, that threaten us. We constantly scan our environments for threat detection. Is there something unsafe? Is there something we need to be aware of? Is there anything flagging us that, that we need to, to you know, remember? Or even memories that we have that are negative. I can guarantee you it is way easier for you to recall many of the negative memories in your life than it is some of the most positive ones. They're like seared in there like a mental image. This helps you survive so you don't step into bad things that can harm you or hurt you or end your life or whatever it is that might be there. It's a necessary biological function, but it can be problematic when it drives us. What I think Paul's doing here, I share this with you because one, that's in you. This is all of us. This is why, by the way, this is why you're way more likely, and the marketing people know this, this is why you're way more likely to click on an article that says five things in your household that can kill you than you are to click on something that says five ways to quickly improve your household, right? And it's just, we're, we're drawn this way. What I think Paul's doing here in Philippians chapter four is I think he's pushing back. I think he's saying, friends, you're more than an animal. You're more than just a biological function of threat detection to keep yourself alive, you're a human being made in the very image of God. You are loved by the God of the universe so much so that he'd send a son to live and to die for you that you might have the fullness of new life and that that life wouldn't just be an endurance test to see if you make it, but there'd be an abundance of goodness in it because of who he is in you. That the fruits of the spirit as the Holy Spirit flows through you might become evident in and around you because of what you bring to this world. There's something powerful to who you are. And I think this is Paul in this passage because he loves this church and he's proud of this church saying, guys, keep focusing here. Push back on that biology. You're more than just an animal. You are a child of God. 
You are something extraordinary and special. So open your eyes to see it. If it's as easy as I'll get out to hold all the negative in one hand, then maybe start practicing. Start focusing on filling your head with this other stuff. So I just want to end our morning here by looking at some of this other stuff, some of what he says. Consider what he says to focus. He says, whatever is true. When he says whatever is true, he's not just saying whatever is empirically verifiable and scientific and fact. It's not what he's saying. When he says whatever is true, it's the idea of whatever is honest and real and dependable, right? Like it's, it's this idea of when you, have you ever seen something that's so good and so real that you don't even have to cause it, call it into question? It just, it just resonates. You're like, there was something true about that moment that I can't even put my finger on. There was something powerful about it. This is how I feel when I experience unconditional love. It doesn't make any sense to me. I can be like, there's a lot of reasons why you shouldn't love me. There's a lot of things about me that, I sh that should frustrate you. I don't think I'm a terrible person. I just know I can be annoying at times, right? There's a lot of reasons. And yet, you just like love me. And there's something so powerful about it that calls so many things into question, and yet I can't argue with just how true it is, and it becomes powerful. And I'm taken aback by that. It's that moment you experience it for yourself or you see it around you. It's what I feel when I watch a parent love a child and there's just something so powerful and true about that that they didn't even choose. It just sort of happened and you're like, I see it. And it's powerful. And it can fill you with a sense of gratitude or your eyes open to the moments that are true where they break that cynicism to pieces. Whatever is honorable, Paul says. The word honorable carries the idea of worthy, respect, worthy of respect or dignified. It, oftentimes, this is used for like sacred moments or things in the Bible, things that are holy. This is when you open your Bible and you suddenly realize, I'm not the first person reading this. In fact, this text has been passed down from generation to generation over thousands of years, and it's crazy. I'm now reading the story of God with man and man with God in a way that like I'm supposed to wrestle with now. Something sacred about that. There's something powerful about that. It inspires awe in me in some ways. This is when you encounter a teacher or a mentor whom you respect and you see wisdom in action. You don't just hear about it, you actually see somebody engaging in something and it's so wise that you just find yourself blessed for having been there. Have you had that moment where you look and you're just like, whatever's happening, everybody be quiet. We should all pay attention to this. This is good, right? It's honorable. Or, yeah, <clears throat> excuse me, honorable. He also says whatever is just. This pertains to righteousness and a lack of evil. My daughter, four years ago, uh, found a $20 bill on the department store floor, which makes her rich at that moment. Like, she didn't have that before. She would suddenly be rich if she'd found $20 at that particular age, and I watch her pick up the dollar. And it's not like I'm like, okay, this will be a test, or I cross my arms. I just quietly pretend like I don't, like, you know, what do we do? And she goes, Dad, what do I do with this? And I'm like, well, what do you think? She's like, I think somebody lost it. And I was like, well, you can always go figure, out, figure it out. And so she takes it up to the cash register. The cashier is like, I think somebody lost this. And they said, thank you. We'll make sure that they get it back if they come in and look for it. And I was just looking at her. I'm like, nobody touch it, right? Because it was just right. It was just just. There's just like a goodness of the thing. These things happen in your lives around you where occasionally people just do something that's good and right and true and just because they did. Do you see them? Or are you just like, yeah, it's old news. Do you see them? Are you scanning for everything else? These things are happening in your lives, friends. Take them in. Paul continues. He says, whatever is pure. This one's my favorite. The reason this one's my favorite is, I don't know, it, it just, it's one of my favorite things to look for in life. I often use an example in this particular characteristic of when I see a, a little baby, like a newborn, and they're just a mess. 
They are. And I don't mean before like a doc's cleaned about. That's gross. I mean when they just like look at you, right? And you see this little kid and they go from like bewilderment to, you know, confusion then to like complexity. And then all of a sudden their eyes light up with a smile. And then the next thing you know, the lip starts to quiver and you're like, oh, no, no, no. And then they start to cry. And it's like this swirl of emotions in a five minute window where you're like, you're a complicated little person, aren't you? Right? I love this. You know why I love it? They don't care what I think. They're not trying to be anything for me. They don't care. Like it's, this baby is just being whatever this baby is and it's untainted, it's untarnished. It hasn't learned to adapt itself to accommodate everybody else in life. It's just being a human and it's pure and it's precious. And to me, it's powerful. You know, life does this thing to us, friends, where it leaves its mark on us in so many ways and you know this because you go through some things and you struggle through some stuff and it's almost like those struggles and those things, they add like a layer of paint to you at times where they just, you know, I was like this and now I've got this layer on me because I walk through a moment and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's hard. I love the moments in life where I get to see something unpainted, where I get to see the parts of people and the parts of this world where I'm like, God made you exactly that way and nothing's touched it yet. It's just the honesty of who you are making its way forward. It's just powerful and good and everything in me is like, no one break it. Let's all just love and respect this. I'm so thankful to be a part of this moment. Those moments are happening around you. This is part of why I even love nature. You don't have to just see this in people. There's these untarnished places and spaces where you just get to look and you're like, God, you are so incredibly creative and I hope nobody messes this thing up. I just want to take it all in and I'm thankful to be here, right? It's pure. And then he uses a word that's only found right here in the New Testament. It's the only time it's ever found. And I, I know this because when I first started to read, I was like, that's a weird word. I've never heard Paul use this word or anyone use this word in the Bible before. I don't remember reading it. It's because I hadn't. It's the only usage. And he says, if anything is lovely. And when we think of lovely, we're like, that's quite nice. I don't know why you have to use the word quite, but it makes it work, right? Like, it's quite nice. It's good. But that's not what it actually means. It's anything which calls forth or inspires love. That's what they mean by the word lovely here. And it's how I feel about you guys. It's when I get to stand with you guys and go, do you realize how you're loving people in this extraordinary way? And the reason it's such a big deal is because it's not just that I'm like, you're doing a good job. You're calling love out of other people that didn't even know they had it in them. And then all of a sudden it just starts to rise up and they're like, I am loved. And then they come talk to people like me where they're like, and I want to be a part of loving others. And I'm like, I know it's amazing. And it's because of what you're doing and who you are. It is lovely friends. You're lovely. <laughs> I don't know if you know that. Turn to the person sitting next to you and awkwardly say, I am lovely. There you go. Yeah. You don't have to be awkward. It just would be for me. And so I put that on you. <laughs> right? The next one, it says, whatever is commendable. This one makes me think of my wife. She does this all the time to the degree that sometimes I, I like back away or I get a little embarrassed and that's my fault, not hers. She literally will see people who are doing something extraordinary, working really hard, and she just audibly tells them what she sees. And sometimes it's really sweet and beautiful, and then other times it's, it's awkward. A cashier will be finishing, like, checking, out of the gross, checking us out at the grocery store, and everybody's in a hurry because it's, like, right before Thanksgiving, and my wife will pause and be like, you are an amazing cat. You do, like, a really good job at your job. Thank you so much for your help today. And the cashier will just stop and just stare at her for a minute, like, Nobody says that. Meanwhile, the person, you know, next in line is like, could you hurry it up, please? Like that type of a moment. And I just find myself being like, uh, yeah, we're doing this again. Okay, here we are. 
My wife will see latte art or cappuccino art. If you don't know what this is, go get like a fancy cappuccino at a weird coffee shop and they're gonna make a design on the top. It's what it is. And whenever they do this and my wife orders one of these things, she'll pick it up and she'll look at it and go, whoever made this, this is beautiful. You did an amazing job. And I'm just like backing away. Like she's had one before guys, I promise. She's not new, you know. But she does. Every time she does this, the place pauses and, and people look up and it's almost like a person who's just gotten used to working hard and doing their thing with excellence pauses and goes, thank you. It's like they feel seen and appreciated, like part of them comes alive. What they're doing is commendable. That's happening around you all the time. Do you know what's happening in your home? There are people working really hard probably in your home. There are people who do chores and they do them with some excellence sometimes. There are meals that get made or something tastes extraordinary, or it's just special, or it's your favorite. There's things that happen constantly within your home. People are working hard to see and look and go, that's commendable, and I see you, and I'm thankful for you, and let it reach you to inspire that gratitude within you. There's also people doing these in your workplaces. There's people doing this in your communities. You can see it. You can call it to attention. Lastly, he says, if anything is excellent or worthy of praise, think about these things. Looking at the whole list, friends, it's let these things be what occupy your head and your heart and your life. Let these things be the things that center you in and ground you because you've got this negativity bias just like me that is gonna cause you to go, but what about the scary thing? What about the fearful thing? What about the questions I can't answer? What about that calamity, that catastrophe? What about these people that frustrate me and this stuff that I'm against and, and these people who are my enemies and all of that's gonna come naturally to you. It has been to human beings forever. But you can push back on some of that as you hold it in one hand and say, but I'm going to make room in the other to just open my eyes to this experience so that I can see these good and beautiful things around me. Why? So that I can have some of that joy, so that I can have some of that contentment, and so that I can inspire this in others because we all need a little more gratitude in our lives. So here's what I want to leave you with. When Paul writes, think on these things. The word think, when he says think on these things, it's written in the present imperative tense. And if your eyes just rolled to the back of your head because you're like, I have no idea what that means, that's okay. What it essentially means is it implies continuous, regular action. So when he says think on these things, what he's not saying is, hey, pepper this into your life every now and then when you kind of like, you know, get your focus off. What he's saying is, let this be a practice that you engage in with regularity. Let this be the thing that you keep engaging in, like a spiritual discipline in your life. Keep going, keep practicing, keep looking, keep walking around with eyes wide open. So the challenge that I wanna leave you with is this. Each day, this next week, I want you to pick just one of these words, at least. If you wanna pick lots of them, great. But start with just one of them, at the very least. And all I want you to do is I want you to scan your environment around you as you enter into your everyday lives with the same intensity that you would look for threats and other things with this list. And I just want you to keep your eyes wide open. I want you to practice scanning your environment. When you wake up in the morning and you reach over to grab your cell phone next to your bed, which is where many of you keep it, and you immediately look at emails in a calendar, I want you to use this filter to look at it. When you're looking at your family and you're engaging with them throughout the day, I want you to use this filter as you look at it. When you go to work and you're with coworkers or if you're in meetings or even in boring meetings or tasks or things, I want you to use this filter as you look around you and you fill your head and you occupy your mind. When you're out on a date or you're doing something fun with other people and whatever it is that you're doing, I want you to use this filter. And when you're at the store or the gas station or dare I say even driving in traffic, friends, 
I want you to use this filter. Can you recognize for two seconds? It's not a normal thing for a person just to kindly let you in. Do you know that? Next time somebody does that, just start throwing a party in your car. Let a gratitude party hit you and just be like, hey, it's not normal. Take the small wins, right? Like, I just want you to see it with this filter so that you can actually experience the goodness of it. Think on these things. Open your eyes to these things. Practice it continually. And here's what's going to happen when you do. You're going to start to realize all the things you don't normally see. You're going to open your eyes to all the moments and all the people and all that Jesus is doing in you and through you and around you in such a way that it actually creates an experience of genuine gratitude so that the next time somebody asks you the question in a given week, how often do you experience a moment of genuine gratitude? It's easy to answer. It is a good and beautiful thing for your lives. It's how God made you. You don't have to get what you want to experience joy and contentment in your life. You just have to open your eyes and your heart to the experience of gratitude that's available to you all the time. May it be true of your lives, may it be true of ours, and may we find that impacting us and the world around us, friends. Will you bow your heads and pray? God, we love you. (laughs) We do. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for the ways that you surprise us. I'm grateful for the way that you've made each and every person in here, Lord, their struggles, their weaknesses, their strengths, the good things, all of it, Lord. And I just love that. I love that we get to share life together. I love that we get to have this moment together. Open our eyes to the things maybe we're missing sometimes. Give us courage and perseverance to see them. And Lord, help us to be more than just an animal who scans the environment, but a human being, dearly loved, made in your image filled with a sense of gratitude because it's there all the time. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.